Heavenly Father, you are so gracious and merciful to us. We thank you for the great privilege it is to meet together as your people this Sunday. We thank you this is only possible because of the work of your Son on the cross. And we ask as we come before this, this incredible passage from your perfect word that you would open our eyes afresh to the wonder of the resurrection. We ask that our minds be enriched by this and our hearts be moved by this outrageous and incredible news. And we ask that your spirit be with us now as we submit to your truth. Amen. Guys, I don't know if any of you enjoyed the BBC series Sherlock. I've been off this week, so obviously I've decided to rewatch the entire box set collection of Sherlock. And it has affected me very slightly. As you walked in, even the people from Clapham, I was looking at your cuffs, if there's any crumbs, seeing who the murderer was amongst us. It, it, it has had quite a profound effect. It's getting a bit worrying. Um, I, I even began to reread some of the, the old books on my Kindle. And I began to wonder about what is it that we love about him? Is it his incredible intellect? Is it how cool he is? Is it that mind palace thing he does with his hands? And I don't think it is. I think what we all really love about Sherlock is the fact that he's single-minded. He's single-minded in following the truth. He follows the truth no matter how incredible the outcome might be. When I was reading, I came across uh, this quote from the fictional character Sherlock. He said, It is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Now, today's passage, and it was large, certainly has an incredible outcome. But I wonder if when we come to the truth of the resurrection, are we ever guilty of this same error? And I mean this both as the blind sceptic unwilling to look at the facts, and also as a kind of blind believer unwilling to recognise a need for facts. Because either way, it would be intellectual suicide. Either way, I fear both would miss the point of the incredible truth of what we're meant to get from this. Now let's not mess about what we heard read to us today. The resurrection, it's completely in your face and Luke knows this. He knows how outrageous a claim he's making but he records it because historically it's what happened. It's the truth. It was amazing to hear it read out loud. I think that's quite helpful rather than just reading it ourselves. Did you notice just all the stuff he includes, all the questioning, uh, all the fear, all the doubting. Women as witnesses, though they wouldn't have been able to stand up in court. He includes incidental details like eating broiled fish. We had this discussion this morning about what broiling is. It's, I thought it was like boiling, but not. Uh, it, apparently it's like grilling, but it doesn't matter. That's not, he's not saying on an Easter we should cook our fish in a particular way. All he's done is said that's what's happened So right in front of us, let's treat this like it wants to be treated, like it demands to be treated. It's a massive claim, but it's a massive report. It's not an optional story, this is evidence. And today I want to say to all of us, I want to say that we should be questioning it. I'd like to go as far as to say, I think you'd be a bit ridiculous not to want to question it. That's not because it's just an outrageous claim, but it is. But because if it is true then Jesus is Lord. He did conquer death and none of us can risk not engaging with that truth. It's an inescapable fact and if the resurrection is true, then we should want to see him. We should want to desperately witness about Jesus to the whole world and that's the passage, that's how I want to take us through. I think Luke 24 should take us from questioning to seeing and then on to witnessing. Witnessing to the true gospel, the true message of the whole Bible summed up here today. The true message of the Bible, which is all about the resurrected King Jesus. So we start in in verses 1 to 12. We're questioning. 
It's a theme that goes throughout. I find that, again, really helpful to hear it out loud. It's not maybe how I remember the Easter story. It's not people turning up you know, at dawn, ready, joyously to sing. As we come here on this first morning, this first morning of a new creation, we see a group of women who find the first evidence of the resurrection and then see the first reactions of those that hear the news. It was customary for women to come in and do this kind of thing, to go and embalm the body in verse 2. Uh, we're not entirely sure how they expected to get in. Uh, maybe there could have been some guards there to, to move, move the stone away. Uh, the historical evidence says it was probably a pretty large stone. There's a chance it could have had a kind of runner system to move it. But even that's conjecture. Because wonderfully, we aren't entirely sure where that exact tomb is. I suppose if you went to Israel on holiday, you could pay a fee and someone would show you one and take your money from you and say, this is it, this is where Jesus was, there you are. <coughs> but actually, for our sceptical minds, it is the most incredible news that we don't know where it is. If this was a story made up uh, centuries later, like some people speculate, it would make sense that there'd be a place. But if the very first believers, if they truly knew that Jesus had risen, then who cares? It doesn't matter at all where it was. Only a man-made religion would need to celebrate a place like that. If Jesus is alive, then Christians have a person, not a place to go and worship. And that is so much more exciting. So I suppose we're not exactly sure how they're planning to get into the tomb. But that's their plan. They've got the, the ointments and the balms and they're walking towards it. And they get there and they have two surprises. Firstly, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is open. And secondly... Jesus is missing. Verse 3, notice it doesn't say he's been raised. No one's gone around thinking, well, that's it. It's all done now. Jesus is raised. That's not their conclusion. All they have here is an empty grave. The tomb where they expected to find their friend is empty. It's open and he's gone. As an aside, I've never thought of it like this way, but the tomb's not open to let Jesus out. We see him later on. He just appears in a closed room. And this is the man who's just smashed death. I don't think a rock's going to get in his way. This tomb is open so that they can get in. This is God saying, look at this. Look what I've done. Come and see. But they don't know this. So verse 4, they begin to wonder. And you can imagine, you put yourself into that situation. You can picture what they'd be saying. Like, it's not going to be an easy thing to move this stone. Jerusalem is swarming with, with uh, people who are there for, for the Passover and full of Romans. And the Roman guards, they're not going to let him be stolen. Anyway, who'd want his body? What would, they, what would you need it for? Why would they leave the, the clothes folded? They're perplexed until these two men appear. They're spoken to by two men who we, we find uh, in verse 23 are later described as angels. I think, I think maybe the blinding white clothes also gives it away a little bit. And then verses 4 to 6, they say this. So the two men in clothes that gleam like lining stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. He's been raised. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And the key, verse 8. Then they remembered his words. They'd heard that this was coming. They'd been told. But it's such an outrageous piece of news. That God had to step in and remind them about it. So I suppose you could say that these women, much like people in our society, are pretty sceptical when they come to it initially. But I'd like to say that this is the right sort of scepticism. It's the scepticism that demands the truth. It's a sort that wants to seek out the answers, and it's going to seek out the answers where they are to be found. 
Its conclusions are built on evidence. If you just follow them through the journey, that's what they've gone. They don't know. They see the truth. They come to a conclusion. And they question their minds, meet the evidence, and have a wonderful conclusion. It's an incredible conclusion. Jesus has been raised. So you can imagine the excitement. It's like kind of Christmas morning when you're a kid. He's been. You're running down the stairs. You're waking up your siblings. It's amazing. They run back. Verse 9. They tell the guys. And that, that should be it, really. That should be gospel over. Start the next book. Ready? But once more, that's not what happens. The truth of the resurrection is, is once more not well received. And it's written off. Verse 11. When the, when the women come and speak to the men, it says they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Their words seemed like nonsense. It could have been because they were women. Not that women speak nonsense. That they were had a low... I was just phone far. That maybe they had a lower standing in society or in that culture. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's just... The fact that Jesus can be alive is so completely unacceptable to these guys who'd just seen him die three days earlier. It's an outrageous truth. Except to Peter. And I'm not to say that he believes. He by no means is convinced here. But again, I think we see the right sort of scepticism. I think if I was in this story, he's the guy I'd quite like to be. That's the one you'd want to kind of hope that's what you'd do. He's shown the sort of scepticism that says, this is pretty big news. It's too big just to take their words for it. But actually, it's too big to not go and investigate. So he goes, he runs to the tomb, and he goes to see for himself. He gets there, and he finds the evidence that's been left for him. And he wonders, or some translations have it, marvels at what he sees. Yet still doesn't quite get it. Still doesn't quite get the truth of the resurrection. But he's doing what I think every rational person surely must do with the claims of Jesus. As we heard earlier from Andy, he's investigating them for himself. He's looking at the truth because it's simply too big not to bother with. So, reading through this first section, I don't know about you, but I was actually quite shocked by their unwillingness to accept what's happened. I think it is my kind of over-dramatised idea of Easter Sunday with like beautiful like rising suns and people gathering on hills. It's not that at all. I was also pretty shocked by how desensitised, I think, Well, I know I've become. So how outrageous Jesus rising from the dead is. I'm surely not alone in this one. Because this is not normal. Dead men do not raise from the dead. Maybe it's because we hear it preached on year on year. Somehow, in our simplest, we let it become just a kind of blasé fact. But it should be outrageous because it is. It's unique. It's not just among other religions, not just in the Bible, but in all of creation and all of history and eternity. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus has done this. Only Jesus will ever do this. Only Jesus was raised from the death, destroying it completely so he'd never die again. So I think, why are we surprised when people can't just accept the resurrection? Surely, unless you are, you know, absolutely mental, you should be questioning this fact. You should be going, that's not normal. Because the guys in verse 1 to 12, they question it and they've heard Jesus himself. But they didn't get it right away. Because they haven't got that Jesus is Lord. And that's what we see in the resurrection. That's what it proves. That's what these pages scream. They say Jesus is Lord. So if you don't get it, I think that's that's okay. I I think it gives me quite confidence here that we're okay if we feel a bit sceptical here. But when you come to the resurrection, you've surely got to ask yourself whether, whether I'm seeking the truth and I want to look at the evidence or am I just blindly going to hold to a conclusion Christian or non-Christian, 
I don't think we can try and form any sort of opinion without wanting to find the truth and engaging our hearts and our minds in the evidence that's here. So if you've never looked at the claims of Jesus, I want to say, please look at them. Look at what they actually are and look at the man who's made them. Because the truth of this passage is that the resurrection changes everything. And we see the difference it makes in the next story that we get going. Where we see in verses 13 to 35, we see two guys, well, maybe guys, two people. They have the most amazing encounter with with the risen Lord Jesus. It's a pretty incredible afternoon when they see the risen king. I really like how normal it starts out. It's just two guys, maybe uh, Cleopas and his wife, or maybe it's two guys. And they're walking from Jerusalem, discussing what's gone on, which is pretty understandable. Uh, you know, many of us have been on holiday recently. We drove back from Word Live. What do you talk about right away? You talk about everything that's gone on in the days preceding. So they've got some big news. This has been not the weekend they expected. Their hopes are pretty shattered. They, from what they say, they thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah. But these hopes seem dashed. Then as they're walking along, we're told Jesus kind of sidles up alongside them. The story gets a little less normal now. And Jesus just kind of walks in and starts to have a chat with them. Verse 17 and 18, are pretty, they're almost funny. Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And they're so stunned that from their walking, they just stop. And just picture the face of Cle- as Cleopas asks Jesus in verse 18. He looks at Jesus and he says, Are you the, you're only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's one of these things where you think, if Cleopas read Luke's gospel years later, it'd be one of these moments where you'd be like, oh, can you just take my name out of it? Or you'd just be <laughs> cringing because Jesus is the only one who knows what has really happened. He knew before his birth. He knew before time. He knew this was all part of God's plan. And only Jesus knows the depths of what occurred at the cross. Unfortunately for Cleopas, Jesus keeps this going. And verses 19 and 25... Cleopas ends up telling Jesus about Jesus. So he essentially tells him the gospel as he understood it. So from verse 19 he says, He was a prophet, he was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we hope that he was, well he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it, it, it took place, uh, sorry, it was the third day since it all took place. In addition, some old women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen. I'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see. Look at his summary of the gospel. Without the resurrection, without an understanding of why Jesus went to the cross, because he was going to be raised again, they're blind to the identity of who their leader is. They're as blind now as they are to recognise him as he's walking alongside them. Verse 21, they said they'd hoped he would redeem. But to them, not understanding what's going on, it appears that he hasn't. The body isn't there. Verse 24, they do not see. Just like they don't see him now. They've heard the truth. They've heard Jesus preach before. They know what they should have expected, but they don't see it. So how does Jesus let them see the point of the cross and the empty tomb? Is it an incredible miracle? Is it more angels? Is it kind of heaven's opening? No, he does it by opening the scriptures. Verse 26. He shows them from the whole of what we now would call the Old Testament, from, the, from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He says that the Christ himself had to suffer and then be glorified. 
That's what he pulls, these two strands, these two ideas that ran through the whole of the Old Testament. He pulls them together. Yeah, yes, the Christ was going to be a prophet like Moses. He'd be the son of man in Daniel. He'd be the Messiah. But here he's saying, these two ideas of suffering and a king come together in me. They come together in Jesus. And they only come together because of the cross. Because of the cross and resurrection. Only because Jesus is alive, having suffered and been glorified. Is this gospel complete? Only now is, is, it, is it not a depressing walk away from Jerusalem? Well, this is clearly a pretty incredible Bible study from Jesus. That they won't let him leave. Our, our Tuesday night home groups are pretty good. But I've never pushed for an all-nighter. So it must be incredible. They also must have been wondering, who is this guy? He doesn't seem to be, you know, up on his current affairs in Jerusalem. But he's got an incredible understanding of the scriptures. And then over dinner... The resurrected Jesus is revealed to them. How they recognise him isn't that clear. Maybe it was the way he broke the bread. Maybe he lifted his hands and they saw the wounds of the crucifixion. Either way, it was at this point that Jesus chose to be revealed to them. These guys, it's incredible. They've met the risen Lord Jesus. Not just in the sense that they've seen him, that they had this meal with him. But from the scriptures, they've seen the difference that he makes. The resurrection completely changes the incomplete gospel message that Cleopas had. It fills it in, it shapes it, it makes it whole. And not just this, but from what Jesus said, the whole of the Bible is completed by this. If Jesus is Lord, which he says he is here, then it's the most incredible news. Look how it affects them, their hearts burn within them. This truth is so incredible that they have another one of those Christmas morning moments. They immediately want to go back. They change their plans and they race back to tell the others that Jesus is alive and he is Lord. I think you can't escape in this section the importance of the resurrection and the gospel message. Jesus said many great things, but all his claims stand and fall with this one. The resurrection is the vindication, it's the proof of Jesus' ministry, it's the proof of his identity. And this says it's not enough to know about Jesus. Because look at them, they're dismayed and defeated. It's not enough to be able to recall uh, bits of the Old Testament. I'm sure they already knew. But what matters is encountering him. Personally encountering with him. And we do this in the same way that they did. We do it by encountering Jesus through his word. And it transforms us. Just like it transforms them. And the transformation doesn't stop there. We see this, this incredible transformation that the truth of the resurrection makes. In our final 23 verses, we witness to the risen king. So it's still the same day. We've had morning, afternoon, and now we're in the evening. And Jesus appears to his disciples. He explains the past. He does uh, everything that was pointing towards him. Uh, He brings joy to their present. And he shows them their future. How they're going to go and witness to the risen king. Again, I I really want to say, because it's it's true historical narrative. To feel the emotion that's going on here. Disciples are uh, in a locked room. They're chatting about everything that's, got, everything that's gone on. You guess some of them are going to be pretty scared still. Lots of them are going to be confused. Peter's now seeing Jesus. Some people are saying they've seen him. Other people have seen empty tombs. There's been angels. There's lots of strange reports. And then Jesus appears. Jesus appears. And again, it's such an honest reaction that's recorded for us. They're pretty freaked out by this. These are rational people. They're not kind of backwards old century people that just accept anything. Because I think that's quite a rational reaction. They'd seen him die three days ago. And Jesus doesn't ask them to abandon their faculties, but shows them evidence. 
They see him physically there with him. They touch him. They eat those broiled fish things with him. And then they listen to him. Once he's proven who he is, he's proven that this is Jesus. And once he's proved that that means he is Lord, he's worth listening to. In fact, if he's been raised from the dead, then they've got to listen to him. And what does he do? Verse 44, he opens their minds. It's the same thing again. He explains to them what was told about him in the prophets, what happened to him being raised, and he shows them how they're going to continue their work. Verse 47, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. They know what they've got to do. They have to go and they, to preach repentance to all the nations. They're not going to stay locked in a, uh, hidden in a locked room anymore. That's the difference that the resurrection makes. That's the transformation there. Jesus assures them about their future. He promises the Holy Spirit to them in verse 49. And then leaves them in 51. Which is strange. You think now he's beaten death. He should just stay around for a bit. And they, you almost expect them to be a bit disappointed. They've lost him once to lose him again. But look at their response. Their response is joy. That's a massive transformation from where they were. The last verse of Luke's gospel says they continually praised God in the temple. If you fancy taking one of Luke's gospels away and reading it, if you read it all the way through, you see this beautiful symmetry in the book. If you go back to the beginning in chapter 2, remember Jesus being dedicated in the temple where they were praising what he was going to do, what the promised one would accomplish. Now his disciples... Now they have the Lord. They worship the Lord in the temple again. The place where man meets God because of what he has done. The one who has promised has come. The one who would redeem has redeemed. The promised Christ has completed his work. But it's even better now. It's so much better than it was at the beginning. Because now the focal point of God's relationship is not a place. It's now his people. That's how Jesus used his death and resurrection to bring forgiveness to all nations Because it's his people he's going to send out to draw the world to him, to their king. And history tells us that Jesus' disciples go out and that's what they do. And and the gospel uh, and, and its response is laid out for us clearly in this chapter. But the resurrection is clearly at the center of it. It's the crowning jewel of the gospel message. And I think in today's passage we see where it's found. We see what it what it is and who it's for. So briefly, where the gospel is found. But repeatedly, where do they look? It's found here in God's word. Nowhere else. In verse 45, what does Jesus do? He, Jesus himself, opens up the scriptures. That's how he chooses to be revealed to them. He could have done anything, but that's what he uses. Even with Jesus looking them face to face, it's a thoroughly biblical answer. The angels in verses 6 to 8, what do they tell the women? What's the convincing thing to them? It's not the appearance. But it's what they remember. They remember the words of Jesus. The same words that we have the privilege of reading in our Bibles. And the guys on the Emmaus Road. What turns their hearts? What made them burn? It was the truth of the gospel. Brought to them from God's world. What an incredible privilege it is for us to have the same gospel in front of us today. The same truth that Jesus was using to explain the gospel. But suppose then the question is. What is the gospel? Well. I think 47 puts it quite clearly. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In context of the resurrection, it's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
It's asking for forgiveness and accepting that by dying and rising again, Jesus has done what we could never do. He's done it to bring a sinful people to himself. The gospel, as we've seen repeatedly here, is all about Jesus because the Bible is all about Jesus. Look back at verse 27. If you just flip back there, you can just picture Jesus is turning to these guys and he's saying, here's the whole Bible. It's all about me. The Bible isn't stories or a, a, a list of kind of do's and don'ts or things to obey. It's all about me. It's all about Jesus. And that's where the change is. That's when it gets personal to them. That's when it stops just being an idea. That's when it changes them. That's when they really meet Jesus. And that's when it makes a difference. When they see that he's pouring out of every page of the Bible. They've just celebrated Passover. Maybe Jesus said, Passover lamb. That's me. Maybe he said, priest, that's me. Every psalm, yeah, that only song, that's about me. This one is me singing it. Every prophet you've spoken about, yeah, that's me they're pointing towards. It's all about Jesus. And look at what it does to them. Their hearts burn. Now, I think there's a danger here that we think of hearts in a kind of soppy, kind of romantic Valentine's way. And I've shared my opinions on Valentine's a few times, so I'll not do it again. But in the Bible, the heart is so much more. Well, let's use it the way that the Bible means it here. It's their affections, it's their intellect, it's everything. One commentator said that the heart here is the seat of their very being. And when it burns, it's passionate. It's desperately seeking this Jesus that the Bible's talking about. They burn for the resurrected king. And, and even at this point, they haven't even recognised it. So what is the gospel? It's the forgiveness of sins only found in the resurrected king Jesus. And finally, back in verse 47, who's it for? I think it makes it quite clear that it's for everyone. Maybe this is lost on us. Maybe now, because the world seems such a small place, we can fly around the world in, in, in a couple of days now. But I think 2,000 years ago, imagine what a paradigm shift this was. Imagine how groundbreaking this was. That God's plan is no longer just one people, but it's for everyone. It's for all nations. The gospel is for kind of secular Westerners. It's for Muslims in the East. It's for untouched people groups. And it's for people here, it's for people in Ellsfield, it's people in Clapham, it's people in London who desperately need it. And I think the gospel message from this, with the resurrection at its heart, says that if we're Christians here today, we should be joyful, we should be burning with desire. It's just the most incredible news. I know we're English, and especially in the South, but we should allow our hearts just be moved by how outrageous it is. Accept that someone raising from the dead is... He's crazy in any other context. But here, it's incredible. And if we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, I think I want to politely but desperately ask, don't sell yourself short. There's nothing wrong with being sceptical. If it's the right sort of scepticism, if you're willing to look at evidence and see what it says. But as we heard earlier during the notices, bring your questions, but bring them to Jesus. Bring them to his word as he's chosen to be revealed. So bring him to the resurrected king. So that you can encounter him. Encounter him like these guys did. They met him in his word. We can meet him in his word. And then you'll understand that why for so many people here, we consider it the greatest privilege in the world to be able to witness to the truth of our resurrected king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are truly wonderful and have been more generous to us than we could have ever imagined or deserved. We thank you that Jesus did rise from the dead, that he did defeat sin, and he did defeat death once for all, 
proving that he's laudable. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that this truth drips from every page of your word. And we thank you that we can bring questions to because it is true, so it can answer them. Please will you shape us and transform us by this incredible truth we read of today. Please will you make our hearts burn with the truth of the resurrection of your son, the risen King Jesus. Amen.